All right, we are um, finishing up. We've gone through four methods of teaching, and we've covered all four, uh, but yet we're still on four methods of teaching. I don't know why, right? Um, because we're going to talk about a fifth that is not really... Okay, there we go. Uh, that is not really a viable method of teaching, but we use it a lot of times. It's referred to frequently. It is a technically, it's a type of inference, um, and it's called the silence of the scriptures. Um, let me define it for you. Um, you've um, you've heard this statement before. Okay, this is not responsive. Maybe this out because that seems to work. You've heard this? Speak where the Bible speaks and silent where the Bible is silent. Um, that's not entirely inaccurate uh, of a statement. Okay? But we wanna, I want to explore it a little bit. Uh, because uh, 1 Peter 4.11 says that whoever speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. That word oracles is a big fancy word for words. If anyone speaks, let him speak as it is the words of God. When we speak, we speak where the Bible speaks. In other words, we are not free to go around making up doctrine as we want. We speak, and that's really what we've been talking about when we talk about Bible interpretation. Our job is to figure out what God was saying. It's, it's not up to the audience to determine. Uh, we talked about that in you know, the modernist and postmodernist type of interpretation. However, we need to notice that that's just the first half of this statement. Um, there is a, another statement that I believe is incorrect, depending on how we look at it. Partially correct, maybe, but we need to definitely understand what it means and what it doesn't that we are silent where the Bible is silent. Um, well, some say, well, the scripture speaks to this and justifies this half of it as well. Uh, Revelation 22:18 says, For I testify to every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add to these things, God shall add to him the plagues that are written in this book. So that sounds like if... God hasn't said it, don't say it, right? Don't speak where the Bible is silent. Be silent where the Bible is silent. And that's, again, that's, that's, that's partially true, but I want to look at this passage of Scripture. What is Revelation referencing? What, first of all, what book is John talking about? The prophecies... Okay, he's not talking about the rest of the New Testament. It might be true in principle, but this statement should not be used to say things it was not meant to be saying. What else do, do we find out in here? He says, not add to what? The prophecies. It was specifically about the prophecies. We get a problem with prophecies, don't we? And so here's this book of Revelation written, and 
people take this book so far out of context. We're actually going to reference a bunch of verses from Revelation uh, today. It's not by design. It just kind of happened that way. Um, and that's the thing he's saying. Don't take a book of prophecy and make more out of it than was intended. Okay? This is a book of prophecy. So as the letter was circulated, John did not want these metaphors to get taken to mean things that they were not intended to mean. Because he said, the plagues of this book, Revelation, will be added to you if you change the prophecy. So, so this is not a universal um, statement. Now, it would be true again. By concept, it would, it would be true. I can't just go around saying, oh, here, I have another chapter that you didn't know in the book of Galatians. I, I can't do that either. But the topic is prophecy. Uh, this is not talking about making arguments from the silence of Scripture. In other words, uh, when, we're, when we're talking about silence of Scripture, what we're talking about is uh, the idea that if God didn't allow it, if God did not specifically state, this is okay, God has been silent, therefore we cannot allow it. That's specifically uh, what the argument of the silence of the scripture is there for. And we're going to explore that. Um, and I think we'll show that that is a pretty deficient uh, type of an argument. And, and I think it should be obvious at first glance that that's not what Revelation 22 was written uh, to talk about. Uh, so we want to keep that in context. In fact, we're going to talk quite a bit about context. However, um, this argument of silence of the scriptures, that, that if, you, if, if God hasn't allowed it, if God hasn't specifically said, you can do this, we have to consider that as wrong, that violates, well, I say, as I term it, it violates the fabric of the New Testament, or, or the New Covenant. Uh, the New Covenant um, is referenced um, as the law of liberty. Someone want to look up, uh, I might have it here. Here, no I don't. Okay, so James chapter 2 verse 12, if someone wants to read that. James 2.12. Okay, it's called the law of liberty, or the law of freedom. Uh, someone uh, want to read First Peter chapter two verse sixteen, which further defines the law of liberty. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Okay. So, so, and I, I like, there's an old version that said, do not use your liberty as a cloak for vice. Love that. That was my, way I grew up memorizing. I think it's New American Standard. Uh, but, um, so he says, act as free men, with the exception that you can't use your liberty as an excuse to do what you want in terms of evil things, vice what we call vices or base behaviors. So he gives a rule, you're free. That's the fabric of the New Testament. 
It is a covenant of liberty. It is not... So, so when you are a free person, you're not... Your default position is not restricted unless allowed. Your default position is it's okay unless forbidden. You see the difference? Um, so uh, with kids, we kind of have a different... right? Uh, with kids, they, are, they have a default position of being restricted unless allowed. Right? You don't have the right to go and do whatever you want anywhere you want. Well, you didn't say I couldn't go across the street. Right? I, I don't have to list all the things you can do. Just you're, you're five years old. You assume you can't do it unless I say you can. Right? That's kind of our position with the child. Once they're older they assume or should assume that they're free unless restricted. And that's the New Covenant fabric. It is a law of liberty. Um, In the New Testament uh, versus the Old Testament is a slight difference. In in the New Testament, and and even even really in the Old Testament it worked a little bit that way, but we are, it's like you're innocent till proven Guilty, not guilty till proven innocent. I want someone to read uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 13 through 15. If you could. Romans 4, 13 through 15. In a different version, it states it slightly different. Verse 15 says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's a concept here. That if God hasn't forbidden it, it is not prohibited. It's not, if God hasn't allowed it, it's prohibited. That's not the right structure. That's an exclusive structure instead of a a free structure. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Where God hasn't prohibited it, you are free. That is an important thing. And so someone will say, uh, well, what about uh, Leviticus chapter uh, 10, verse 1? And we know the story well. Uh, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took a censer and put fire in it and put incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he hadn't commanded. And of course, we know the story. Fire came out and burnt them up. They offered, and you will hear this word used frequently, unauthorized. Well, this is not authorized. Right? And the, the idea is, if God hasn't, again, God hasn't authorized. Did God have to tell them every type of wrong incense that they could uh, that they could they could burn. You can't use that mixture. Okay, listen, uh, no sandalwood. Uh, you know, like they have to go through all the things they couldn't. So, so therefore, silence uh, of the scripture prohibited. And that's that's the arguments made. First, what 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 are several problems that you might see with this logic? You have a booklet 
16 miles long about every specific okay. little thing that you Okay, all right. So Leviticus chapter 10 verse 1 is used to support that um, silence of the scripture is an acceptable use of teaching and forming doctrine. The first problem I noticed is that it is an Old Testament text. It cannot be used to prove things in the New Testament. That's the first problem. The second thing is, is we haven't shown all the verses on the topic. So if we go back to Exodus 25.9, it places this one in context, which we're about to speak about in length. Exodus 25.9, he says, Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. This is an exclusion. In other words, God gave whatever he gave, and he said, this is the only thing. If you've got a statement like that in the New Testament then fine. There is no silence of the scripture with Nadab and Abihu because there is a scripture that says you have to do it just like this. That is an exclusionary statement. Uh, <clears throat> any thoughts so far? Right. Um, the New Testament has a significant lack of recipes. It does. There's not a lot of recipes in the New Testament. You notice? I've had communion bread with salt. I've had it without salt. Which one's right? I know there's a reference to unleavened bread and why it's unleavened in Corinthians. Should it be baked till it's hard like a cracker? Should we eat it soft like bread? It's called bread. Why do we eat a cracker? I don't know. Little cups or big cups? One cup, many, many cups. Right? There's not a lot of recipes in the New Testament. There are no statements, make the communion bread exactly like I told you. If it did, we would have an exclusionary statement. That would exclude all other recipes. But we don't have that. So... Um, want to look at one more passage. Romans 14, verse 2 through 6, before we close this section. Romans 14, 2 through 6, if someone wants to read that. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's, uh, someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand for fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Even of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does not... Uh, does so to the Lord. Whatever, whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. 
for they give thanks to God, and whoever abstains does not does so uh, to the Lord and gives thanks to God. There are a ton of things, <laughs> depending on the place you lived and uh, what cultures you were brought up in the church, that people fought and fight over. And God really doesn't care a lot about those things. Unless he's spoken on them. Unless he's given a, you have to do it like this statement. I grew up, Christmas was a sin. Because of the pagan origin, God says, one person out of his faith towards me decides that he wants to honor me by, by not celebrating a, a day. Another person wants to honor me and celebrates a day. Great. Don't care. This is the law of liberty. You get to express your faith towards me as you wish, provided you do not use your liberty as a cloak for vice. Right? That's the law of liberty. So we are going to move on, if there's no thoughts or questions, to context. Different types of context, and, and when we talk about hermeneutics and Bible interpretation, this is one of the places that we go to first. We are coming to it virtually last. What did I do? Okay. There's different types of context here. Uh, the first one we're going to talk about is textual context. Textual context uh, asks the question, what? Uh, in other words, we, we read the whole thing. I want to know the details. What details in this passage are important? And this is the kind of one of the problems that happened. It was a great memory tool when people gave us chapters and verses. It was great to find stuff. But what it allowed people to do is rip out a verse, not read everything around it, lose the details and go, see? And now we have all these arguments because people don't have to know the whole setting. You don't have to know how to find it. You, you used to have to know the text to know where something is. I mean, imagine if you didn't have a... You'd just kind of have to know, oh, it's somewhere in there. And, and you'd have all this material that would naturally get into your brain because you're reading through it to find it. And it would just, you would absorb more. But now we just go, where's that concordance? Okay, this is here. Um, and so people rip things out and then uh, they end up getting misused. Um, so details in the surrounding text help understand difficult uh, verses. I want to look at uh, an idea here. Uh, we'll, we're going to do some things. How, how's, how's this one? We've read this before. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What a motivational verse, and it makes great posters. Right? Um, What's the context of this verse? Anybody know off the top of their head? Okay. Doing what? With whatever you have. He was talking about there are times when we had lots and there were times when we didn't. And we okay. were still able to do whatever in that context. What is this verse used frequently to, to show? What? Virtually everything. 
you can do whatever you want. God will give you the ability to do and accomplish great things and and be a great person. And and that may be true, but that's not what this verse says. Uh, So so let's read the context. Philippians 4, 10 through 13. And and Becky nailed it. Uh, Philippians 4, 10 through 13, if someone wants to read that. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whenever the circumstances. Right up through 13. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any way and every situation, whether well fed or hungry. Well, that places it in a different context now, doesn't it? We understand that in a different light. It doesn't mean that I'm going to dunk a basketball. I cannot do that through Christ who strengthens me. It is never going to happen. What's that? That does not require God. That requires a little crank. So, context. Textual context. Know the details before we jump into the middle of a verse. Uh, Next one, situational context. Situational context asks a different question. It asks the question, why? What is the situation? Why is this... Why is this here? Um, What is the point of the text? What is maybe the general aim of the larger section? Sometimes even, what is the point of this book? How does this fit in with the book of Romans or with the book? How are these details? These details aren't just random things thrown together. Unless you're reading the book of Proverbs, they tend to be just random things. But the majority of books kind of have an outline. And you can follow it. And there might be different themes under those, those things, but, but you can kind of sense where he's trying to go and what he's trying to prove. And you, if, if, we're trying to, if we're pulling out a meaning that violates the very nature of what he's trying to prove, we've probably interpreted it incorrectly. So uh, give you an example. First John chapter 4, verse 2. And you can tell me what you think that it was referencing. First John chapter 4, verse 2. or what it's used frequently. We'll start there. 1 John 4, 2. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. Okay. So, um, how is this frequently used? Do you think? No, no need for baptism. Maybe. Okay. There's no need for that. We we just uh, say the sinner's prayer. We're going to see a couple of those, by the way. If another religion, denomination, if they acknowledge God, Jesus, 
then they're from God. We all believe in Jesus. And that's really the important thing, isn't it? Okay. What is the situation and what's the point of First John? Based on what? What is the essential problem? Letter of First John opens up and he says, this is the word concerning this guy. We've seen, we've touched him, we've beheld him with our own eyes. Right? What's the context? What's the, what's the situation? In the flesh. It's Gnosticism. This is written around the 90 AD. We're going to talk about when in a separate thing. But um, he's trying to address a certain thing. Remember that, that they don't have a bunch of denominations yet. They don't have this church and that church. That, that doesn't apply. That situation doesn't apply yet. They have one group of people that's outside of Christianity at this point in time. And they are a people who have infused Greek philosophy with Christianity and said, well, Jesus never came in the flesh. He was a mirage. Because the body is evil. Physical things are evil, so Jesus couldn't be evil. So he couldn't have come in the flesh. And John writes and says, listen, anybody who comes in here and says that's wrong. They're not teaching the truth. They're part of this group called Gnostics. Don't pay attention to them. That's all this means. If we know the situations, it helps us correctly interpret and use these verses the right way. We don't come up with new doctrines. Oh. So, uh, so know the why. Uh, <clears throat> the next type of context that we're going to look at is, um, oh, I already did that one, historical context. We're going to look at three questions underneath historical context. First of all, to whom? To whom? Um, I like this statement that you are reading other people's mail when you read the Bible. Right? The letter to the Ephesians. I'm not the Ephesians. It may have application to me, but it was not written to me. I'm reading other people's mail. Uh, knowing the audience will help you define usage. Not completely, but it helps. Um, so, for example, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Revelation 3, 20. It'll be obvious how this is used when we get there. So I want to read that. And how is this used? Anybody ever heard this used? Open the door. Oh, this is at the end of every one of those little pamphlet books that someone will hand you. Just open the door. Just open your heart. Pray the sinner's prayer. 
Who's he writing to? He's writing to Christians. <laughs> They're already Christians. This is not about how to become a Christian. Know who it's being written to. Right? That's important. Who is it written to? These are people who need to repent. They became Christians. And that's what this group is. It's a group of seven churches. And we're going to go back to that. It is not a sinner's prayer verse. So, uh, again, another concept under to whom. It may not apply to me. It may, or it may not. Now, if I took this verse as it was intended, it would apply to me, wouldn't it? As it was intended, uh, Revelation 3.20 applies to me. If I am wrong, I need to open my heart, because God wants to have a relationship with me. That applies to me, even if it's somebody else's mail. However, not all things apply to me. So, uh, an example, Jeremiah 29.11. Let's read that one. This is another one of those motivational posters. Who is he writing to? Okay. They're either just about to go in or just barely got there. Somewhere in that time frame. What's going to happen to these people that he's writing to? They're going to die in slavery. I have plans to prosper you. Who's the you? If they're going to die in slavery and not be prospered, who's the you? The you in general, Israel. Yeah, there we go. Context. Know who it's written to. It's written to a group of people called Israel. It's not written to these people. It's not even applying to them. And then we take it as not applying to them and go, I know the plans I have to prosper you. You're going to be successful if you just... Do that doesn't apply to me. It didn't even apply to them. It applied to their great-grandchildren and grandchildren. That's who he was talking about. We have to know the who or to whom. Uh, is quite important. Another one, where? Where is an important question. I want to talk a little bit about Revelation. I'm not going to not a Revelation class, it's just because Revelation is one of the most frequently taken out of context books, it makes a good illustration for how not to, what not to do um, with an easily identifiable things that are taken out of context. Um, there are three main ideas about Revelation. Do you know what the three main understandings of the book of Revelation. Just the, the basic concept. We talked about premillennialism, which is that, uh, that 
all of Revelation is going to happen at some point in time about the end and all this stuff and weird stuff that's going to happen. And then Jesus is going to come back and go there and come back a bunch of times. And then eventually we all end up in heaven. That's, that's kind of the, the walnut in a shell version of premillennialism. And it all applies to us. We're going to see this happen in our time. All this stuff. All these symbols. We'll understand what it means. There's another version uh, of this that says that um, uh, it's called the preterist view. Preterist means that the entire book of Revelation is about the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, and they connect Revelation to Matthew 24, 25, and that's all about that. Okay? Uh, we're not going into whether or not these things are true or not. Um, but I, I just want to illustrate, I, I want to just give the basic. There's a third one which says, this is a historical book. It is a book written in history. I'm giving away which one I believe. Um, that starts then, and it's written in symbolic language, and it refers to important things that affect the church throughout history. Obviously, I'm in the camp of the last. Uh, so, where it is written is, I think, answers at least one of these questions. Uh, where uh, it was written from, where it was written to, geography can place an important thing. So, for example, um, if we look at it, there's a little tiny island called Patmos, where John was. He wrote to some churches that are basically in that little circle there. Well, let's read that. Um, Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. Verse 4. Oh, verse 4. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne. Okay, Asia, by the way, is not China. This is called Asia Minor, um, is what they referred to it. It is Western Turkey. So, the theory that he's writing concerning a book of um, warnings concerning the fall of Jerusalem. You see Jerusalem down in the lower right portion. He writes a warning concerning the fall of Jerusalem to seven churches in western Turkey. Geography is kind of important. This would be like writing a warning about a hurricane and I mean by miles, this would be the same, this would be the same thing. This would be like if we here in Waukesha wrote a letter of warning about a hurricane that will happen in Chesapeake Bay, Virginia, and addressed it to seven churches in the Green Bay area. It's important to know geography. That makes no sense. I, I think we can get rid of and eliminate one of those three things. Right? Especially as you look at a map, sending a message the other way would be a lot more direct. Uh, 
So, uh, the geography is sometimes important. And one last, uh, one last question as we look, when it was written. When it was written is important. The whens, or not even when it was written, but, uh, well, hello? This either died on me? There we go. Okay. So, when it was written, or when the events are talked about, when those happen. So, one question would be, for example, was this written in the Old Testament or New Testament? We've talked a little bit about that. That's important to understand. Well, that doesn't apply to me. It was written in the Old Testament. Or, or it might be an event written about, or a statement written about something that occurred. You know, for example, um, I'll give you an example, just a, it pops into my head. Technically, the book of, uh, you know, the Gospels were written in the New Testament. And we have, well, what about the thief on the cross? We talk about, oh, the thief on the cross. And, and that, that whole thing, the thief on the cross wasn't baptized. And we go into that discussion. Well, the Gospels were written under the period of the New Testament, but they are actually written about events that occur before Christ died and rose again. Most of them. Most of the events occurred. The thief on the cross dies prior to Christ's resurrection, so he can't be baptized. That statement does not apply. A, a statement about baptism cannot possibly apply to the thief on the cross because the thief on the cross belongs to the Old Testament even if he's in the New Testament. So, so that's an important question. Knowing Old Testament versus New Testament. Or, here's another one. What event is significant or specific? Um, can you think of some events that might help us place the understanding, you know, um, the historical context? When was this statement written? Were there significant events happening that might help me understand how I should read this? Can you think of anything? Okay. This is a major event. That would help me understand Matthew, the end of Matthew, chapter 24 and 25, right? That helps me understand that a little bit. Oh, now that makes sense. Were they generally under persecution? There are statements that are about general persecution, statements, I'm urging you not to get married. That was a statement directly connected to persecution. Uh, knowing events that happened before, you know, the beginning of Acts, before Gentiles were a part of the church, there might be statements that affect doctrine that if we pull them out, they don't necessarily apply. They were about a specific situation. So knowing specific situations or specific events helps us to uh, place uh, what a Bible scripture might mean. Um, We look for um, modern fulfillment uh, of revelation and current events. Well, that doesn't, um, that's not really... uh, and I want to close with one verse. Revelation 1.1. 1, 1. When we look at um, when things were going to be fulfilled. What does Revelation 1.1 1, 1 say?
Okay. So, those who interpret Revelation as it's all going to happen for us are essentially saying that the majority or the entirety of the book of Revelation has had zero meaning for 2,000 years until now. Again, that makes no sense. Look at the winds of a passage. They give us a lot of clues in how they're supposed to be understood. So, any thoughts as we close? Yeah, they call those, uh, 